Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We begin the show today with a recap of the Georgia primary runoff, which saw Raphael Warnock defeat Herschel Walker. I give the news and then my big takeaways of why I think Herschel Walker lost and the path forward from there. Then we launch into a big victory, at least for now, over the JCPA, which is quite a big deal and a big credit to this audience. I know a lot of you were involved in this fight, which I think benefits Breitbart directly. But again, I can't rest in your laurels. This bill has a zombie nature to it, and I'm sure we'll be hearing at least uh, about parts of it down the road. So let's stay on our toes here. We also cover immigration news, the revelation that Dr. Fauci's daughter worked at Twitter during peak censorship, and much more in the opening of the broadcast. We have two guests today. The first is Senator Marsha Blackburn, who was one of the main opponents to the JCPA. So that's a win for her. She also was successful in getting the military COVID vax mandate out of the NDAA as well. So a good day for her and a good day to recap with her on the broadcast. Then we speak to Congressman Greg Stubbe, a guy who I like quite a bit and I think is the first pro-JCPA person we've had on the show, at least in a while. And he supports it. And when you get his take on why, um, well, you, you can draw your own conclusions. I would call it deliciously awkward. But then we get into a lot of stuff where we have common ground, like Section 230, immigration, impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas, and much more. Uh, it's an exciting interview, and I think you're going to like it. All that to come. Let's get into it. start with the the bad one, which is the Georgia runoff. It went pretty much how I expected, unfortunately. Herschel Walker may have even performed a little better than I anticipated. Um, I turned into a pretty big Herschel Walker fan by the end of his candidacy. I thought he turned out to be a strong candidate in Georgia. I thought he was pretty good on the issues. I thought he was shockingly good in interviews considering all the media attacks on him. Uh, And I thought despite some of his personal failings, which became a big centerpiece, of the conversation about him on the campaign trail, uh, he actually turned out to be a much more substantial person than I was anticipating from you know media reports. And it is actually sort of inspiring to see people who have had a lot of personal struggles and are getting a lot of egg thrown at them, figuratively speaking, in the press, um, actually you know kind of come back and um, be able to publicly take the slings and arrows and, and, and move on. Uh, but sadly, he did not make it, and he's going to lose by about two percentage points, which is pretty much about what people would have expected, maybe a touch better, I think, because, uh, again, a lot of Republicans get demoralized when elections do badly. We learned this from 2020, and this turned out to be the case here when this race, when the Arizona race and the Nevada race ended up not going the Republicans' way, not to mention, of course, the infamous Pennsylvania race, um, then it ended up being that this seat matters a little bit less because the Democrats will have a majority via the vice presidential tiebreaker. They knew that uh, going into the race, which makes it um, less fun for Republicans to vote. So once it became clear this was for the 50th seat and not the 51st Republican seat, uh, I had thought Warnock was probably going to win. That's how it turned out. Again, not saying all my political predictions are correct. I'm just telling you my thinking on it. And um, but I became more and more enthusiastic about um, 
uh, Herschel Walker's candidacy, which makes me sad. So uh, not a good day. And anyone on the left is going to have a good time with it. A, a couple of takeaways from the race, which is interesting. Um, uh, first of all, I will say that the the attacks on Herschel Walker, I do think were pretty racist. And I know we're all obsessed with racism, but uh, there was a lot of smears on him, for example, as being the least coherent human being ever to speak publicly. That was uh, one of the lines that was put out by Bravo's top chef host, Padma Lakshmi, uh, among many, many, many celebrities who carpet bagged in this race and tried to tell Georgians how to vote. And apparently Georgians listened. And we have a compendium of these, Breitbart.com. Uh, we do this on uh, a lot of major issues. But attacking him is not a bright person, not a coherent person. He's achieved a lot of success in a lot of different ways. And the Democrats are willing to elect John Fetterman, who literally cannot speak uh, a full, complete sentence. And that was fine with them. So coherence is not the standard on the Democrat side of the aisle for what makes a good politician. And I thought Herschel Walker actually had some moments from the stump. I mean, he is not... Raphael Warnock, who is a professional public speaker. So uh, there's a little bit of a gulf there uh, in terms of smoothness. But overall, I thought Herschel Walker was pretty good in public and turned out to be a pretty solid interview interviewee um, and from my vantage point. And I just think that those attacks are clearly racist because when Fetterman was incoherent, it's not a problem and he's white. And when Herschel Walker is much more coherent than Fetterman, but maybe not quite as coherent as professional preacher Raphael Warnock, then now he's all of a sudden the least coherent human being ever to speak. Uh, obviously a racist attack, and um, everyone who says stuff like that should get canceled and removed from their banking systems and not be allowed on social media. I'm exaggerating with the last point. I don't believe we should have a society like that. Yet, if the left lives by their own rules, that's exactly how things would have went down. Um, there's a lot of conversation since the November election about stopping the steal in Arizona and talking about whether or not Republicans put up the best candidates. Uh, and I, I think a lot of this was really counterproductive. Um, the Arizona uh, race got certified. And yes, I know it is totally surreal to have Katie Hobbs, the secretary of state, certify her own super sloppy election that made her the governor. Uh, that is a disgrace. But we always knew that was probably going to happen and we didn't adequately get prepared for it as a conservative movement. And once the vote came in, again, we've been going through this for, it's gotta be as long as they've let me have a microphone. Uh, it is nearly impossible to undo election results after the election took place. They're almost never changed or flipped. I'm not saying it's never happened, but they're generally smaller races um, where it's a lot easier to have full accountability and it's still very rare in those cases, you know, less than a, a fraction of a percent a fraction of a fraction of a percent. So there's almost no chance it happens. So we did a lot of talk about that. Uh, we did a lot of talk about candidate quality, which ironically really would have hurt Walker because I do think there is an element of establishment Republican world, the establishment Republican world, that would probably like to see Walker lose because Walker was tied so deeply to Trump. Now, I asked Walker about if he was campaigning with Trump and my last interview with him, and you could play it back, uh, Walker didn't distance himself from Trump, but he was not deeply tying himself to Trump at that point. Trump was behind him and endorsed in the race. Um, but it, it was Walker was really touting his endorsement from Ron DeSantis, and he was trying to be on his own. I don't. He did not rally with Trump during the... Uh, 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 during the uh, runoff race, I think that was his choice. 
I don't think he wanted to. And I think that that makes a lot of sense because Trump's brand is not super strong at the moment. Not say Trump won't bounce back. Of course, there's a very good chance Trump will and turn into an amazing candidate. It's quite possible. But at the moment, Trump's having a hard time. So Walker didn't campaign with him. I think that was an interesting decision. Uh, and it's, it's noteworthy that I think a lot of people in the never Trump world are probably sort of happy today because the seat was sort of low stakes. And then now they can say, see, look, Trump's candidates stink. Trump is not powerful anymore. Trump is not strong anymore. And I, I, that's a very bad thing for the country if that's the attitude. And I do think that's the attitude for some people, maybe enough people to uh, cost Walker 2% of the vote. And if that's the case, that is a, a big disgrace to give more power to Raphael Warnock. So uh, I'm unhappy about that. It's bad news. All the details are written up by Matt Boyle on the front page at Brightport.com now. So, uh, a, 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 I, oh, yeah. And the, and the last thing that was not discussed was there's not a lot of mail-in voting talk relative to what there should have been. All of the conversation right now in Republican politics, if you were serious about winning, if you're serious about 270 electoral votes and more seats in the House and the Senate, uh, the conversation needs to be about, for example, what went on in Mike Garcia's district out in uh, just north of Los Angeles, a district that was uh, slightly Democrat. It was neutral. He barely won it when it was neutral, and then it got redistricted to be slightly Democrat. Uh, via voter registration, and he won by six percentage points in a uh, in a race where Democrats overachieved, and in a state where we just saw a recall of a really bad governor, Gavin Newsom, fail spectacularly. So a lot of lefties out there. Now, how did he increase that margin? Now, Mike Garcia might not be as exciting to uh, to put on TV because fighter pilot, Family Guy. Solid individual, not flashy. But what did he do? He was on the show and he talked about it. He talked about his mail-in voting effort. He talked about how he embraced that that's the system now, so we're going to be better at it than Democrats. And it's not going to be as fun on election night because a lot of our vote won't be counted yet, but that doesn't matter because we're going to win in the end. It's exactly what he did. So there was a lot more talk of whether or not we're going to undo stuff in Arizona and a lot less talk about is there a way to emulate what... Mike Garcia did out in California, uh, and what what Lee Zeldin did out in New York. What was Zeldin doing? Uh, nearly winning the governorship in one of the deepest blue states, and dragging a bunch of Republicans across the finish line and down to congressional races in the process. Did we talk about that a lot during the next, last month? Uh, maybe a little bit on this show, and a little bit on some other shows, but it needed to be much more of the conversation. Because we know ground zero for Democrat community organizing is Georgia right now, because that's where Stacey Abrams set up shop and built her machine. She kind of ruined her machine by turning out to be a really crappy politician for herself. But people who are not personally as tainted as she is are the beneficiaries of it. So that needs to be the conversation going forward. Uh, It is no longer about just candidates and just issues. And trust me, on this show over the next couple of years, you will hear uh, hundreds of hours of content on candidates and issues that will come up because it's interesting and it's important. But let's not forget what the biggest thing is. The biggest thing is whether or not uh, we can actually get the ballots into the ballot boxes. That's how the Democrats think of it. They don't think about who is the candidate They don't think about what are the issues nearly as much as how do we get the ballots into the ballot box. Now, has that been the attitude 
in uh, regarding this race with Republicans? Um, I would submit no. I would submit that it has not been the race, the, the case. All right, that's the bad news first. Now the good news, the JCPA, and this is one of these bills that we refer to as the media cartel bill. It's a, one of these zombie bills. Um, the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, which is a, uh, uh, which has been, had been attempted to be inserted into the National Defense Authorization Act. This is the bill that gives media conglomerates the ability to form a cartel and negotiate for money to be paid by tech oligarchs. Now, this is one of these ones where big media loves it. Big media loves it because it would uh, allow them to get money, first of all, a slush fund for them, a gravy train from big tech, and it also would allow for them to continue to have advantages over anti-establishment media, not like they don't have enough. They already have reputation. They already have um, oftentimes billionaire backers that I wrote about often in Breaking the News. Uh, they also have you know tons of resources, which makes it a lot easier to do journalism. Journalism is a very low margin business if you're doing good journalism. So if you've got more money coming in, you can do better journalism. And then they've already got all these tech partnerships anyway. If you look at what Google News chooses to highlight, they highlight mostly establishment sources. If you look at what shows up in your Apple News, it's almost entirely establishment sources. Um, uh, companies like NewsGuard, who are tasked with policing, tasked themselves with policing the entire world for what's true and what's not. Uh, the, see who gets of the anti-establishment outlets, uh, which ones get more favorable treatment from NewsGuard, anti-establishment or establishment. There's all these built-in advantages for establishment media, and they're still doing a t terrible job not just in terms of breaking news, but reporting accurately. And of course, their intense levels of bias and propaganda. And so this would have been a slush fund for them from big tech. And big tech was mostly fine with it because it would all have been a drop in a bucket for them in terms of how much money they would pay. And then it would create this scenario where the establishment media would ultimately get dependent on them. And it becomes a payola type deal that they could start negotiating more uh, uh, in a more challenging way with these entities. They're supposed to police them and supposed to keep them accountable. So if you're all of a sudden getting a big fat check from Apple and Microsoft and Google and Amazon, are you going to the, investigate those companies to the same extent that you would have? Of course you're not. It, it's the, we all have our roles in the media. And a lot of the times where I choose to put my focus as an investigator is in places where people are not investigating or it doesn't, or where it benefits me and my worldview where we're gonna investigate. That's the whole nature of Breitbart is I will explain that to you, which the New York Times won't. Uh, I will say there's a lot of people investigating Donald Trump uh, as business dealings right now in the media. Uh, I do not have anyone deeply investigating it. I have people reporting on the basics that come out. We'll have a few more on those late, uh, later. But that's not where I'm going to distinguish ourselves. And it's not my personal interest to figure out every last detail of what's going on with Donald Trump's real estate deals in New York from the past. Okay? Not my focus. Plenty of other people on that. It was As it was not my focus to, fo uh, to report every single detail of Trump's Russian collusion. Wasn't my focus. We did it for a few months. I became pretty convinced there was nothing there. And so I moved on. New York Times didn't. 
Washington Post didn't. They got Pulitzers after that. Maybe I would have gotten some Pulitzers if I stuck with it. But I thought, you know what? It's not really in the interest of my readership or me. So I'm moving on. I explain this stuff. The editor of New York Times will never explain it. Editor of the Washington Post will never explain that. But that's how the media works. So now, have big tech start cutting checks to the establishment media. The masters of the universe cutting checks. Do you think there's any chance that you're going to get the same level of investigations, which is already pathetic, into these massively powerful companies that control so much of your lives? If they're paying the journalists who are supposed to investigate them? No, it's such a terrible idea. It could only get worse if you attempted to put this in a bill to, def- to fund our national defense, which is exactly what the establishment tried to do. The National Defense Authorization Act, a must-pass bill um, that was released on Tuesday evening, which is yesterday, if you're hearing the show live, um, was supposed to include this slush fund for the establishment media. And if you haven't heard of this, there's a reason why you haven't heard of it. It's a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, it's because uh, News Corp is behind it. And News Corp is behind it for an understandable reason. There was an analysis done that the vast majority of money that would be projected to be negotiated from big tech to the establishment media would go to um, uh, Fox News and the Wall Street Journal and uh, the New York Post. Now, I have no idea how that would have worked out, but the News Corp entities would have gotten actually the vast majority of money to conservative media. Not even most money, like the vast majority of money going to conservative media would have gone to those entities. So that's why News Corp was kind of into it. And if you understand Rupert Murdoch, I'm not saying I understand him completely. Uh, I do think he's consistent in that though he is pro-free speech, um, and I do think he's at least lightly conservative, I think that he wants to win more than anything else. I've said this on the show, but it's worth repeating. I think his main ideology is winning. And if people like Breitbart are out there saying, hey, we think it's going to be really terrible for us, and News Corp thinks that they can get in on the establishment media's cartels, maybe a cartel where they're a part of it, and Breitbart can't, and entities like Breitbart can't, uh, that puts them in a better position to beat us and to be basically a monopoly in conservative media. Now, even if Murdoch is a conservative, and maybe he is, even if he's pro-free speech, and he mostly is, he loves to win the most. So he was all good with it. And that's why you might not have heard that much of it on Fox, though there's a couple people on Fox who were good on it. Uh, but it's not going to be front and center like it was at Breitbart because they stand to make money from this bill going through. Um, same thing goes with anyone, any entity that's associated with people like Ted Cruz. Uh, Ted Cruz famously was one of the major advocates of this bill, the biggest surprise uh, that he was an advocate for the bill. My theory on why Cruz was behind it is because Cruz is running for president constantly. And I do think he wants to seem as though he can reach across the aisle. And he's the type of person who could be part of legislation, which he was working on with Amy Klobuchar, who is one of the main backers of the bill on the Senate and the Democrat side. And he could work across the aisle. He's a unifier. And that's part of his narrative for when he inevitably runs for president again, whether it be this election cycle or next. And I think that kind of sends a signal for parts of conservative media that, hey, if Cruz is into it, it's complicated, Bill. You know, the big tech loses money. Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll work out. I'm, I'm for it. And to get people kind of tune out. And I think that worked to a degree, but eventually people start to tune back in.
they started to understand that this was probably a plus for big tech. It was a huge slush fund for the establishment media. And then also they're trying to tack in the defense, a national defense authorization act, literally supposed to be for military and defense funding. Uh, that should be illegal. And anyone who wanted to do that should be repeat, impeached and removed from office. And I'm looking at you, cocaine Mitch McConnell, who was the one who wanted to put it into this bill. And I think Mitch probably did that specifically because of Breitbart, because he knows, because he's a smart person and um, has got people uh, all over conservative media and uh, definitely is paying attention to what we're putting up on our pages. And if he saw that Breitbart was so upset about this, that uh, unfortunately uh, might have backfired on me for a minute because he probably thought, oh, wow, if Breitbart really hates this thing, then um, let's try to get it into, let's get it through it however possible. And of course, the amount of lobbying money on this thing was just insane. It, it totally intense. It's why it keeps coming back up and why I keep telling you the bill's dead and then it comes back. And it, trust me, it, when I say it will probably come back again, which is why our headline, the front page of Breitbart News, JCPA, JCPA out of NDAA, the media cartel bill on hold, uh, establishment in cocaine Mitch rebuked. And the last headline is victory parentheses for now. So it's a victory, big win, uh, big win for you guys. Thank you, those of you who called your senators about this. It's a big win for me and Breitbart, but it's also just for now because they'll try to find another way to put it in somewhere. Because when you've got a lot of money who wants this to get through, uh, you've got even some of the establishment conservative media would really like to get through. You can never, you can never go to sleep on it. Um, but it should be illegal to do this stuff. This is fourth world country behavior. It's really sort of third world country, but I like fourth world. It's a fun, fun expression where we're going to attack a bunch. We're going to Christmas tree a defense authorization act with a bunch of pet projects. And there are many others in this. Uh, some of them also came out though. And because when you fight, sometimes you win. And there's a lot of good Republicans out there who fought this bill. Um, Senator, Senator Blackburn deserves credit. Mike Lee deserves a lot of credit. Steve, Steve Daines deserves a lot of credit. Um, Tom Cotton took the lead on this. He deserves a ton of credit. He was teaching me stuff about the bill that I didn't even know, which is impressive. And there were a few others like that. Mike Lee as well. Mike Lee was knew this thing backwards in front, knew exactly how to fight it. Um, Senator Rubio, Senator Hawley, a lot of people publicly oppose this bill who are really strong. Senator Johnson, strong members of our Congress. There are a few out there. Tom Tillis said, there's no place for the media cartel bill in the NDAA. The bill is a backroom bailout for big media. Good stuff. Really good stuff. Heartening. Mike Pompeo said, all Republicans should oppose cramming the media cartel bill into an unrelated defense bill. Absolutely. And when I say when you fight, sometimes you win. The, the defense bill was also supposed to require a Pentagon military vaccination mandate, and uh, it is not in there, thanks to another Republican push. When you fight, sometimes you win. Um, other news that is out there that I will highlight, and I'll try to sum up some things quickly, and we can take some calls. Trump organization has been convicted of tax fraud. Noteworthy because, you know, Hunter Biden still walks free, but a, a bunch of convictions um, for falsifying business records, scheme to defraud, and it, it's all over 
kind of rounding errors financially in terms of taxes. Um, I think the penalty that is being assessed is $1.62 million, which is for the amount of taxes that the Trump organization would pay. I believe it's in it's in Manhattan or New York in general. I I mean I mean it's, it's marginal. It's a rounding error. So I'm not saying it's good to commit tax fraud. I'm not endorsing tax fraud. I'm just saying this is sort of the exception that proves the rule in a way, especially when we're talking about the level of investigation that's been into the Trump family and Trump's businesses, and how there is nothing that is being done, it appears, to investigate some bad guys on the left. So, if you want more details on it, you can go to any other left-wing website, and they can fill you in on all the details. But I will tell you, there were some guilty convictions, and as far as I can tell, $1.62 million is, come on. I mean, the investigation itself costs more than that. A quick Twitter update. Elon Musk has fired his former Twitter general, Twitter counsel Jim Baker and was allegedly not only suppressing Twitter files, but I guess was in charge of vetting the scoops that were sent to Matt Taibbi to report on Twitter that we went into a lot on last week's show. Kind of surreal thing. And of all the house cleaning Musk did, apparently he learned that one of the worst guys uh, when it came to uh, Twitter's role in censorship was a guy who was in charge of actually vetting the scoops that went out exposing Twitter's internal censorship. So it, it's all amusing from a news perspective. I, I don't know how much it changed all of our lives materially, but uh, good for us for firing the bad guys. Um, and it just prompts me to think about what could be if we start learning the full extent to which big tech has been censoring people like me, outlets like Breitbart, conservative thought. I would love to hear the full story of shadow banning, which is the concept where you think you're following an individual and you think you're seeing all their tweets, but you're not. And they think you're seeing their tweets because you follow them, but you're not because Twitter deems it so that your tweets don't show up in the algorithm. And how they manipulate the algorithm in order to promote certain identities and ideologies and, and not others. So Breitbart was the guinea pig of this, and we reported on it, and everyone said we were lying. We reported that we'd gotten a lot of information to suggest that some of our most prominent personalities were not seeing, uh, um, their followers were not seeing their tweets. And Twitter denied this, and of course turned out to be true. And then it expanded from there. So I would love to see the true story, the behind-the-scenes conversations behind shadow banning. And then I would love to see this expand beyond Twitter. Of course, who knows if it could ever happen, but maybe some bold whistleblowers will stand up. And we'll do some articles on this at Breitbart um, as time goes on. But I would love to see the full story of, and those of you who knew the show, you will think this is untrue. It is 100% true. In May of 2020, where Google shut down all traffic to Breitbart-related stories on the Biden family. The only way to get a Breitbart story on the Bidens was to actually type in the word Breitbart. So we could break a scoop on the Bidens. We could have exclusive quotes from Donald Trump, then President of the United States, and then the candidate about the Bidens. And you could not find it in Google unless you typed in the word Breitbart. They manually manipulated it to shut down our Google traffic to virtually zero. 
The only traffic we got from Google at that point was when you put the word Breitbart in it. Then they would allow for our results to come up. Um, and this was documented to a great degree at Breitbart.com in my book, Breaking the News. Even if you scroll back far enough on my Twitter account, uh, you'll see some videos I made demonstrating this. Uh, there's a chart in the book, Breaking the News, where I show our traffic graphically from Google and it flatlines. And there's a specific date, May the 5th, 2020. I would love for a whistleblower to step up and do what Musk did and turn over all the documents that show what the conversations were when they decided we were no longer going to allow our readers to see Breitbart's content. Arguably the most popular, certainly amongst the most five popular conservative news outlets on the planet. Um, maybe I'm exaggerating a little. I think probably on the planet, certainly in the country. Arguably the number one. Certainly indisputably in the top five. And just to shut it down completely. And barely anyone seemed to care. Trump didn't really care because Trump doesn't care about Google. Trump cared only about Twitter. So, and we have so many people who are afraid of us on the Republican side that they didn't raise a fuss about it. Though privately, a lot of people acknowledge that it was bogus, what was being done to us. I would love to see the full story. I would love a nice whistleblower culture to emerge from this. And I hope it happens. And if Musk makes that happen, then he will get my unending praise if this is the beginning of that. Sadly, I got a feeling this is just going to kind of fizzle out quick. But I hope I'm wrong. All right, a couple other quick ones that I will mention. I, it's mostly on the immigration front. Uh, the White House is backing a bill to replace white-collar uh, white workers. Uh, this is another one to keep an eye on, the Eagle Act. Neil Monroe's done some brilliant reporting on this for us at Breitbart News. He probably talked to Neil this week about it um, because he's really nailed this one. Uh, but it would encourage temporary visa, visa workers to become permanent workers. Uh, this is going to immeasurably help these foreign workers from taking American jobs because there'll be the thought that they'll be here for a longer time and it'll make them more attractive candidates without having to pay them an extra penny. Uh, in annual salary, et cetera, benefits, et cetera. Uh, and it will uh, hurt Americans. It will, at a minimum, lower Americans' wages, if not take their jobs outright. Uh, again, uh, why this is being prioritized uh, is uh, clear. It's, a, as Republican Scott Fitzgerald put it to us, it is the an end run around immigration caps trying to find creative ways to import more people into our country. This is the Democrats' uh, way of uh, undermining this country and uh, getting new voters. This is how they do it. So, and I'm not saying all immigrants aren't bad. There's a lot of amazing immigrants. And we only have the best immigrants, okay? Neil Monroe himself is an immigrant. So it can't hard for me to, for me to get accused of being anti-immigrant. The point is, is that why is this being done? Is it being done because it's necessary or is it being done because this is the Democrats' way of uh, helping the big business class by driving down the wage of their workers and helping the Democrat voter rolls? That's what they're doing. It's a cynical thing. This is not of the goodness of their hearts. They're bleeding hearts. Speaking of immigration, the Soros-backed LADA George Gascon has issued a policy that will help criminal illegal aliens avoid deportation as if they were going to get deported in Los Angeles anyway. So that is where the focus is on the left right now. Just don't forget that is what they're up to. Uh, it continues to be a big issue, and we can't get sidetracked too much, and um, we got to focus on it. A couple other quick ones. Uh, Dr. Fauci has admitted his daughter worked for Twitter. 
unbelievable. So while they were censoring stuff that went against daddy and his terrible medical advice, uh, she was there. She was working there. He said he also spoke directly to um, Mark Zuckerberg about censorship. Now, Zuckerberg's a pretty sophisticated guy, so I don't, uh, I wouldn't doubt that Zuckerberg didn't do everything Fauci said, though he certainly did some of it, and he came clean about it in that Joe Rogan interview, I think, um, that he was willing to be manipulated behind the scenes. So uh, I, would like, I would love to hear more on that topic. But uh, I'd be happy to see him go. This is his last month, apparently. But I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more of him down the road, Dr. Fauci. Senator Marsha Blackburn is the politician that comes on the show most frequently, and it's partially because she's pretty clear-eyed when it comes to what should be the priorities of the Senate, and she had a couple of big victories that we get into, and then uh, we go ahead from there. Here's the interview. Senator, I appreciate the work you've done to push back on the JCPA. I want to talk about this bill, both from a content perspective and also from a strategy perspective. Uh, I, and I, it's tempting for me to jump ahead of what's in it to what, where it was supposed to show up. It is not shown up. Uh, we learned at the last minute in the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, but how could our country be in a place? where we were trying to put a handout for journalists in a bill about national defense. It seems like a level that would be beyond the pale, uh, but it's not for many of your colleagues, unfortunately. And what is a tremendous concern to me, Alex, is that we have evolved to this point where people say, oh, this is a must-pass bill. And see, the NDAA, the Defense Authorization Act, is one of those, because for 61 years in a row, we have done this bill. And people say, well, that's going to move. That's going to get done. It's going to get to the president's desk. So let's Christmas tree this bill and other things that we really want to pass that we can't quite build the support for. Let's stick it onto this whether it is a banking for marijuana dealers or the JCPA, uh, which would allow the car- media cartels to form, or other bills that have not been able to clear the 60-vote legislative hurdle. And then it puts people in a position, people like me, who are going to support the military, who have a military post, who are fighting to get resources to our men and women in uniform, then it is, do you vote against the bill? Or do you vote for it knowing that it contains some garbage that you really that is inappropriately placed in that bill? Things that need a fulsome discussion, that need to go through committee and go through the markup process, that need to clear those hurdles. Interesting. So let's talk about the content of the bill, which you've done a good job, I think, of being someone who understands this. Unfortunately, I'm convinced some of your colleagues haven't bothered to coach themselves up on it. Uh, What's in it and why don't you support it? The reason I don't support it 
is because it would disadvantage our small players in the marketplace, the media marketplace, and it would basically give these larger media outlets the opportunity to consume some of your local media outlets. Now, and then work with social media to basically say, we have verified, this is legitimate, this is fake, things of that nature. Now, you will have some smaller outlets that will say, oh, this lets us get paid for our content. Well, we've been down this road before. We see what has happened in some of these provisions where content creators are supposedly going to be paid. And, oh, they do get paid, but, oh, it is pennies, pennies on a dollar for what they are being paid. And what we are saying is, no, these should be business arrangements that are made between content creators and those that are going to be distributors. Yeah, that is, uh, I I think, a very good point. And there's many good points in them. And I just do feel like that down the road, even though some people in big tech are objecting to it, uh, I think overall they're going to see they're going to have a lot of power over journalistic outlets who are supposed to be policing them. And and last I checked, Senator, a lot of the news these days has been that big tech is being incentivized uh, to big tech is getting called to the carpet because they've been censoring so much conservative content. And so the fact that there's some Republicans behind this uh, th- that are supportive of this bill, I think there's something up here. It's either there, there's a lot of money being tossed around or there's some really misguided people. But luckily, it does appear to be on hold for, for now. Uh, we got text of the NDAA last night, and it looks like there's some pretty substantial victories for the good guys here. Um, uh, I don't even know if you probably know everything that's in it at this point, but do you have anything you want to share about what you know about it so far? Well, the provision, as you're well aware, that I have worked on for the last six months is to free our men and women in uniform from this COVID vaccine mandate. Yes. Um, It is inappropriate to require this shot and not to recognize the religious and medical exemptions. Some of our men and women in uniform have had COVID. So they have that natural immunity. They do not need the shot. We know that the shot does not keep you from getting COVID. We have a president of the United States that was double vaxxed and double boosted and got COVID. Um, We know that our military is not meeting their recruiting and retention numbers. We have uh, the Army itself is 15,000 troops short of their goal for this year, and they will be an additional 21,000 short in 23. So it seems senseless to implement a mandate that has already caused the Army to remove 1,800 troops. 1,800. So this is why we were saying, look, And I'm happy we got this language in here, or I should say I'm so pleased for our troops we got this language in here. But it says, okay, uh, DOD, until you meet your recruiting and retention goals, you cannot 
put this in place and you have to rescind the existing mandate within 30 days. Uh, that is great news and congrats on that. And so th is there anything else that you think is important to know about the bill uh, thus far? I know there's a lot of concern that the Democrats are going to keep adding unrelated policies. And sometimes that's the I'm on a personal crusade against these omnibus bills because this is what happens every time. Um, but it seems like we got some good concessions with the vaccine mandate and the JCPA, but it does seem like, you know, there's always horse trading that goes on. Do you know if there's anything traded that's bad news? Well, what we do know is that this is filed in the House. I, um, I'm not sure yet if it moves forward without amendment. And there has been discussion that it may move forward under a rule that will not allow amendments on the floor in the House. So what you see is what you're going to get, and that is what is going to come over to the Senate. And since this has basically been a pre-conferenced bill, I do not anticipate that they're going to allow floor amendments on this bill. Um, interesting. All right. Well, we will go from there. And again, a good news so far. Uh, do you feel like more of your colleagues are starting to understand the JCPA? Because I feel like it's one of these ones where there is still some some ignorance about it because uh, it just doesn't. I don't think they feel like maybe it's as essential as some other things that are more fun to talk about, I guess. Well, what what you've got is this is a must do. And the Democrats have had egg on their face for not doing it. And they've basically, and I give um, our, you've got McCarthy and Scalise in the House, and uh, you have Soon and McConnell in the Senate, who have really pushed and forced the issue of this being focused on military and not letting the Democrats Christmas tree this bill. And then as we move forward to a funding mechanism, what we're beginning to hear is that it will not be an omnibus, but it will be a continuing resolution. Now, it may be a six-month continuing resolution. It may be a full to the end of the fiscal year continuing resolution. But what that means is that the House, where the funding measures begin, the House will have the opportunity to do a budget that is going to insert some fiscal responsibility. And then the Senate, which will be under Democrat control, is going to have to bring those measures to the floor to pass a funding mechanism for next year. One of the stories that's captivated my audience's attention over the last couple of weeks have been these Twitter file stories, which kind of reveal, revealed a lot of stuff to my audience that we all knew. But now we've got the receipts, so to speak, that some of the censorship of conservative content was really widespread and uh, calculated by big tech. And they were able to do it without any accountability, even though I think it's tantamount to interfering in our elections. Uh, and now we know for a fact this has happened. Um, I know you've read through what Twitter files are available. Uh, tell me, did anything strike you in them, and what do you think are the major takeaways here? When we look at the Twitter files, uh, the thing that I think is the common thread, if you will, is that there was intent 
by employees at Twitter to tweak and manipulate the information that the American people were going to have access to. And here's these content moderators would move forward if something offended them and offended their value system, their personal value system, then what they would do is use the platform where they work to amplify their value system. And Twitter was to be the public square. This is how these big tech platforms had gotten where they got. They would say, well, we're the modern day public square. Well, guess what? They were not doing that. They were saying, okay, we're going to moder- uh, moderate this content or manipulate this content or push forward this content in order to suit our our process, our desires, our thoughts, our values. And Alex, this is, and, and people knew this was happening. They would see it, whether it was Google, and you would go on to Google somebody and all the bad about that person pops up in the feed first, and that is called preferencing, or whether it was looking at what would be blocked or, uh, you know, this store, this uh, post has been taken down for illegal or unverified content or some something like that. And, and people can figure this out. People are smart. And they have figured it out. And what you're seeing from the Twitter files, in my opinion, is things that as much as you wanted to believe this was not really taking place, that companies would not do this, you see that, yes, they were using their power for that content manipulation. So talk to me about your efforts to break up what's being described as the Apple-Google-App Store duopoly. I think that this is a pretty apt description for it, but uh, give me your thoughts on what your efforts are right now. Yes, we have the Open App Market Act, and that is something that is bipartisan. Senator Blumenthal and I have done it. It came out of committee on a near-unanimous vote, 20 to 2. And it has been ready to go through the floor, to the floor. We're trying to push it through by the end of the year. And this would remove Apple and Google as the gatekeeper on your apps. You know, right now on Apple, you cannot put something on your phone that does not go through the Apple App Store. And I think you, the consumer, should decide what apps you want on your phone and not Tim Cook. And at Google, it is less restrictive on the Androids. However, it is very difficult to put those third-party apps. As I have talked to app innovators, they have told me market access is one of the big problems. So this legislation falls under antitrust. But, Alex, what it would do is remove Apple and Google as the gatekeepers, it would open up the app marketplace so you could get apps directly from the app innovator. And it would remove Apple and Google's ability to take 30% 
of the profit on those apps from these app innovators. So if you're spending a dollar on the app store, then Apple or Google is getting uh, 33 and a third cents of that. They're taking that, um, that percent, that third of that profit. On top of that, they demand that you use their pay system, their in-app pay system, and they're making money off of that. Yeah. So the app developer is only getting two-thirds anyway. And so this allows them to work directly with you, use their own pay system, keep all of that profit, uh, build their own marketing system, do their own upgrades directly to the consumer. And these developers and innovators have said, you know, they have had to depend on Apple to decide if they live or die. And they don't want to do that. They want to be able to take their innovation directly to the marketplace. You know, it's interesting that this comes up because we've been talking so much lately about these Twitter files. And one thing that I think is noteworthy is that Elon Musk, whether or not you have positive or negative opinions about him, I think he's really terrible on certain issues and clearly distinguishes himself in a positive way from his counterparts and the rest of big tech. In other ways, uh, he's not going to be very happy if he starts charging people for Twitter and actually Apple's making, you know, two fifty out of the $8 he's getting from people to have the Twitter. Uh, that's not going to work for a guy like that who's world's richest man. He can get to world's richest man by giving away that percentage to Apple without negotiating it. So it, th this issue really could get a fair bit of attention, and I think it does. It is a mechanism to make the richest companies in the world richer and more powerful. And until this point, I hadn't even thought of it. And so a credit to you for bringing this up. But you think that this does, if it's bipartisan, it's got to have a future. Uh, what has it been the reaction so far from Apple and Google? Oh, well, as you would expect, they are not a fan of this bill. And as Good. we have worked on this bill, I have had conversations with uh, the people from Apple, with Tim Cook, and look, this is a huge revenue stream for them. Yeah, massive. Because when that app gets downloaded, uh, they've made money. They've made money. As I said, they're taking a third. So every dollar, they get a third. And then they make money on the payment system. If you remove that, you remove that continual steady revenue stream which they have been depending on. And they say, well, you know, it's a way for us to keep apps as secure. Well, let me tell you something. There are healthcare companies in Nashville, Tennessee. There are religious organizations in Nashville, Tennessee. They do not want to have to pay Apple in order to communicate with uh, parishioners or with patients. They want to be able to work directly with them. A very interesting. Senator Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee. If people want to keep up with what you're doing, where's the best place for me to send them? You can find me on social media at Marsha Blackburn or our website, blackburn.senate.gov. Thanks, Senator. Appreciate the time as always. And um, uh, keep up the good work.
I think you guys are going to like this one. Congressman Greg Stubbe came on. He's a smart guy. I think he's got good priorities, but he somehow got roped into being a co-sponsor of the JCPA, one of the worst bills that is floating around the Congress right now, but for somehow is bipartisan support. We get his explanation of why he supports the bill, which, again, I promise you will enjoy it. And then we get into some other priorities for the Republican Congress, plus a couple of things to watch out for in the lame duck session that still could become law. So you want to hear this one. Here's Congressman Greg Stubbe. And Congressman, you and I agree on the vast majority of stuff, and I really admired your work in the Congress so far, um, but I don't think we're in alignment on the JCPA, which has been a big uh, focus of us at, at Breitbart, and you're listed by the News Media Alliance as a, as a co-sponsor. I, I don't think we've had any major JCPA advocates on the broadcast, though they've been invited. Um, are, are you still there with this bill? And if so, could you maybe share what some of your, uh, the, the, why you think it's a good idea? Yeah, the top line. So this is Buck's bill. So I would encourage you to have him on because um, it, it's his bill that he's working with the Democrats to get through. Um, and the the bill that I think would get passed in the Senate, Ted Cruz put an amendment on that makes it even tougher on big tech. Look, overall, I think we need to do whatever we can to come against big tech. And this, at least it was, the way it was proposed and the way I read it, is it gets gives smaller conservative outlets like Breitbart the ability to band together with other smaller outlets and negotiate as it relates to Google and Facebook. Um, obviously, Google and Facebook is completely bringing down um, and, and coming against smaller conservative outlets, and they're using that because of the power, the, the, the media power that they have, because they're basically monopolies. Australia uh, but- passed a similar thing. Um, and it was actually successful there, and we've seen you know, smaller conservative outlets there be successful because of the change in the law. I support anything that is going to make it harder for Google and Facebook and these social media companies to be woke and to go against conservatives and to shut us down. I mean, this number right in front of me is just crazy. Seventy percent of Republican campaign emails went to spam on Google Mail. I've been saying that for years. If you go back and look at a Judiciary Committee meeting three years ago, I think, when we had – uh, Google CEO on. I asked him that question because when I was in the state Senate, all my emails would go out to my uh, contributors and I'd get this huge response. And then when I suddenly get elected to Congress as a conservative Republican, nobody's getting my, my emails if they have Gmail. And you know it's intentional what they're doing. And now we have facts to actually back that up. Uh, absolutely it is. Uh, but I do find that it's somewhat unrelated to what the contents uh, of the bill is. Well, what gives you the confidence that when these media companies form a cartel, uh, that Breitbart is going to be included? Uh, I'll tell you, I'll, working with other conservative outlets on certain things, we don't all line up on stuff. And we're certainly not going to get welcomed in any cartel that includes the New York Times or the Washington Post. And to be honest with you, even the News Corp publications, which do a lot of terrific work, but they're highly competitive people. I don't think Rupert Murdoch is going to be negotiating on behalf of Breitbart with big tech. That just sounds entirely unrealistic. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the the marriage that I saw was Breitbart and, uh, and the Federalists, but I understand your point. And I think it's something that can be discussed. Like, I'm not married to one position or the other, and I think it's something that now that we have the House, we can govern on this issue more conservatively than we did, like Ted Cruz put that amendment on in the Senate, sure. uh, and, and maybe relook at the approach that they want to do. Look, I want to pass my bill on Section 230. I think there needs to yeah. be complete reform on Section 230, and I think if we do just that and not allow these big tech companies to have liability protection, you will change the behavior quickly when they violate your First Amendment rights. So when the New York Post issued, tweeted their story about Hunter Biden, uh, 
New York Post could have sued Twitter because they censored their story if my bill were to pass because they wouldn't have liability protection anymore. That is my goal. That's one of the things that I think we need to do. But I'm certainly open to hearing both sides on this. And I think we can rework this now that we're in the majority on the House side and make it the yeah, way we I- want it to be. Well, and one other thing that I think that you talk about liability protection, one thing that I think holds big tech accountable is that there is at least some level of journalism that's done that does target big tech. And when big tech is literally cutting checks to media outlets uh, and they're negotiating how big those checks are going to be every so often uh, as a big collective, that just seems like a formula for no more journalism to be done on big tech, because it seems like, why would I investigate people who are cutting me huge, like creating a huge slush fund. If there's a huge slush fund for me, whoever is doing the slush fund, Congressman, just be, you know, to be honest with you, I'm probably not going to investigate them quite as hard as the people who are not giving me a bunch of money. And that seems like what this bill does. And I just find that to be a contra to taking on big tech. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And if there's things that Breitbart sees that can we change or a bill idea that you guys have, I'm happy to look at that. I'm certainly not married to the language in this bill. I'm just a co-sponsor, and uh, I think Buck would probably be able to articulate the reasons why he thinks this is important over things like what I want to do on doing away with the Section 230 liability protection. Okay, well, let's talk about that because I think that that's probably probably some common ground here. Um, uh, Give me your thoughts there. Well, right now, all of your big tech companies have liability protection. When, When these social media companies started years ago, uh, I wish I would have been here, but I wasn't. A Republican Congress gave them liability protection because the argument at the time was they would be sued out of existence and not be able to get off the ground. Well, of course, now they've used that, knowing that they can do things like censor the Hunter Biden story, censor you, um, censor your emails, not allow you to speak on vaccines or COVID or any of these other things. And there's legally nothing that you or Breitbart or anybody can do to stop them legally from doing that. So what we need to do, President Trump wanted to completely remove Section 230. I don't think we should completely remove it. I think we should reform it. I think what my bill does is it puts a market dominant test in place for the big guys. So anybody that's over a certain amount of subscribers, uh, then they can't violate your First Amendment rights because if we completely do it away with Section 230, smaller conservative startups like we've seen with Parler and some of these other conservative uh, social media platforms will get sued out of existence uh, if it's not in place for the smaller people. So my bill has a market dominant test. It would specifically target Twitter, Facebook, Google, and the big guys. And if they violate your First Amendment rights, you would have a legal cause of action against them. And just the mere passage of that bill would change their behavior because they're not going to want to get sued by a whole bunch of people when they're censoring your posts and and, uh, colluding with the Biden administration to determine what you're seeing and not seeing. This is a really wise approach, I think. Um, I think when you look at 230, a lot of people who just have more of a cursory knowledge of it uh, would say, well, let's just let's just throw it out. Um, but it really does provide some things for smaller to medium sized uh, entities that is um, uh, useful. But for the bigger guys are clearly taking advantage of it in a way that was not how it was intended or at least how, uh, you know, you and I would like to see it. So I think those are pretty reasonable uh, points, and I think it, it, that is definitely something we would love to see taken on in the next Congress. Uh, I want to ask a little bit about the way bills are passed these days and your reaction to the fact that, you know, we have this National Defense Authorization Act, and it just seems like there's a big rush to add things to it. And it looks like a lot of the elements that uh, I, I might not like 
did end up getting removed at the last minute. But why are we passing all sorts of things like even the JCPA, which was discussed to be in the uh, in in this bill? Why are we talking about defense bills in journalism concepts at the same time? Why is the funding done in this way in this country at this time? And do you see a path to stop it? Yeah, the short answer is it's because Speaker Pelosi is still in charge of the House, and this is the way she operates. When I got elected in 2018, um, it's all, it's been like this because that's how she runs her ship. You know, they in secret develop what these bills are, and they go straight to the floor. Committees don't have the opportunity to go through them. And this this bill, the NDAA, was it was rumored last week that we were going to vote on it, and then literally last night. So it's sometime after I went to bed, the language was released because when I had a hit this morning, I read that the vaccine mandate was taken out, which I fully support taking that out and not yeah, putting that on service news. members. But like in the dark of night, suddenly the bill language appears and thousands of pages and we're voting on that today. And that's wow. how Speaker Pelosi uh, runs the House and that it's absolutely not the way that the people want us to run the House and that's absolutely not the way it should be run. When Republicans take the majority back, Kevin McCarthy has said that he's going to bring back what's called regular order, which means Greg Stubbe files a bill to limit Section 230 and do away with Section 230 liability for um, big tech companies. That gets referred to the Judiciary Committee. The Judiciary Committee is going to go through a markup. That markup's going to go through and hear all the input from the people on that committee, and then it's going to go to the floor after it's gone through the committee process. So the next Republican leader will absolutely change, the next Republican speaker will change the way that the House has operated for the last four years. I think that's big. I think it's just as a common courtesy to the public, uh, at least having confidence that your elected leaders knows what's in the bill uh, that they're voting on, I, I think is... Uh, step one and step two is it would be nice that when things are called the National Defense Authorization Act, they don't have stuff about journalism. And I mean, there really should be illegal. It's the same way that the, the Biden Inflation Reduction Act uh, it did not reduce inflation. I mean, this there's certain basic stuff that shouldn't be allowed. I'm not saying that you need to put people in handcuffs over it, but it just it seems like something that our country should be able to not have this level of dishonesty from Washington. And yet and that's what we've come to, to come to expect. And it's not allowed. It's actually against the rule. You have the single subject rule and you actually there's there's a rule when I first got elected to Congress, the Democrats put in place of a three day on any appropriations bills or the NDA or anything like that. The bill gets published. You have three days to go through it. The public has three days to go through it before you vote on it. But because the Democrats are in control, they change the rules just like mask mandates on the floor and magnetometers as I walk into the to the floor every single day. I get frisked going in as, as a representative of my district before I go onto the floor to vote. All of that was put in by Pelosi because she's the speaker, and they violate their own rules every single day on things like that. And those are the things that McCarthy will put back in place when we have a Republican speaker back in place. So give me the rest of the agenda that you're excited about when you guys head back to Washington um, with control of the Congress. What do you think are the top things to do, top things to investigate, top things to pass? What are you most excited about? Oh, man, we're going to be busy. The first, obviously, in my opinion, is the border and immigration. Uh, passing a cumulative uh, border bill that shuts down illegal immigration. Frankly, I support a bill that completely halts any immigration into this country until the border is under control and we have control over what's happening on the border, uh, which is obviously causing fentanyl death, which is obviously causing all these other issues that the Democrats apparently want happening into our country. Um, border number one, immigration number one, judiciary, we've already had conversations that that will be the very first hearing that we have when the committees are seated 
is impeachment proceedings on Secretary Mayorkas, passing an immigration reform bill. And look, we're not naive knowing that Joe Biden is going to sign a conservative immigration reform bill. So what we're going to do is use the appropriations process. Look, Department of Homeland Security gets their funding from the House, from Congress. That's where the money comes from. And we can put policy riders on that appropriations, for example, that say something like, not a single dollar of this fund shall be used to allow an illegal immigrant to come into our country. So there's things that we can accomplish on a policy basis through the appropriations process. And uh, I know our leaders are committed to doing that. I know Jim Jordan's committed to doing that because we've had those conversations. Immigration would be number one, reining in spending, um, all the oversight that we need to do on the Biden administration, from the Hunter Biden laptop stuff to the immigration stuff, to the DOJ and the FBI. We're going to be very involved in that, in the Judiciary Committee, uh, the atrocities that happened in Russiagate, the atrocities that are happening right now with a politicized DOJ going after uh, conservatives and not going after liberals. All of those kind of things will be on the chopping block for us. And we're going to be, it's going to be a very busy first year because it's, it takes time to do those investigations and depositions and hearings. Um, but judiciary's got a whole line of things that we're looking at, and every, just about every single committee is going to be doing some aspect of investigation, whether it's Hunter Biden's foiling dealings in Ukraine, which you know is going to the big guy and all these different things, to, to at least allow the American people to see that information. I'm glad you brought up immigration because there's a couple of places I, I, w- I want to take this and, uh, in our remaining time, Congressman. Again, Greg Stubbe's with me from Florida. Uh, the Democrats are working on something now, the lame duck session. It's called the Eagle Act. And uh, it, it really, uh, Neil Monroe, one of our reporters at Breitbart, described it as creating an indentured service workforce. But it really is about trying to keep a level of um, of of uh, visa people and green card holders in the country that is elevated and trying to get around existing caps in immigration. And this is, of course, at the expense, well, we're not anti-immigrant here, uh, obviously, but this is at the expense of American jobs and at a minimum American wages. It does benefit the biggest businesses in the world and it benefits Democrat voter rolls. Uh, It seems like a cynical thing, but we have to be on guard for this before the House changes hands. Yeah, and another bill that we're voting on that today. You know, you get you get notice that, oh, suddenly, a day or two before that we're going to be voting on that. So that bill will probably pass the House because uh, the Republican majority doesn't get seated until January. And then hopefully there will be 10 – there will be the, all of the Republican uh, senators that aren't willing to, to join with the Democrats and find 10 of, 10 of them to pass this stuff. Look, we have – and here's another thing with – the NDAA and some of these other things. In less than 30 days, Republicans take the majority in the House. Why in the world would Republican senators work with Democrats to pass all these bills in a lame duck session, knowing that Republicans are going to have a lot more negotiating power when we take the majority back in the House in January? And it's, it's, it's less than a month away. It's very frustrating as a member who's worked hard to get the majority. It's been in the minority for four years, and we yeah. see the majority on the horizon, and you've got Republican senators who are working with Democrats to pass crap that the american people does don't want Uh, it seems like there's a growing consensus in the republican house at least for the next congress that uh, there are a few people in the biden administration who might be uh uh, up for impeachment shall we say one of them is alejandro mayorkas i I want your take on that if you see a uh, any of his offenses as impeachable um and if and also i want your reaction to the fact that some of your colleagues in the Senate are already splashing cold water on this concept. 
Yes, 100%. He's, he's committed impeachable conduct, but we're not going to just run to, just like the Democrats did, we're not just going to run and just impeach him. We're going to do the things that you should do to show the American people all of the laws that he has broken at the border and continues to do every single day. And I'll just give you two of the most offensive things. The last time he was in the committee, which was over a year ago now, uh, we asked him specifically, at the time there was like 42 known terrorists that had been apprehended at the border, and we specifically asked him under oath, did you release these known terrorists back into our country? And he refused to answer that question. That number's like 90-something now uh, and still has refused to answer our question. So that answers the question and tells you that they've released known terrorists into our country. Every single day they are intentionally and deliberately violating federal law that Congress has passed at the southern border. It is 100% impeachable. We will lay that case out before the American people. But again, to, like on your point with senators throwing cold water on it, well, we can impeach him in the House because we'll have the majority here. I actually think we actually pick up a couple Democrats, quite frankly, because immigration has been such a horrible issue for this country in the last two years. But it takes 60 votes to remove him in the Senate. So now that the, after last night in Georgia, now that it's going to be a Democrat 51 to uh, 49, uh, are you going to get 60 votes to remove Alejandro Mayorkas as the DHS secretary? Probably not. So we can impeach him over here on the House side, but he's not going to be removed by the Senate. Uh, so I, I want to keep people's expectations reasonable that we're going to do the work that we should be doing and that people elected us to do over here on the House side. And uh, the Senate, unfortunately, is likely not going to hold their end of the bargain because it requires 60 votes to remove these individuals. Uh, well stated, Congressman Greg Stubbe. I really appreciate all the time, and I hope to come back soon. Anytime. Thank you. I got American parts. I got American faith. That's today's show. Thank you very much to producers Zach Jones and Greg Eben. Robert Marlowe helps me pick topics. All of you who tell people about the broadcast means a lot to me. And we'll talk to you tomorrow.